This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi everyone, I'm Katie Couric and this is Next Question. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi is one of the country's leading anti-racist scholars. And in fact, everything that Dr. Kendi does as a professor, an author, a researcher, a podcast host, a human, is in an effort to reframe how we think about racism and how we fight it. And he's very prolific. In addition to his academic career, he just co-edited a new book called 400 Souls. He's starting a new journalistic endeavor, an online publication centered on racial justice called The Emancipator. And he's creating a podcast based on his 2019 best-selling book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. He is also a stage four colon cancer survivor. I think it gives me a level of urgency. I think that's why some people are like, why are you doing all these different things? <laughs> you know, why don't you wait to do this or that? And I'm like, Wait for when? <laughs> Ibram and I talk about that life-changing diagnosis a little later in the show. I couldn't start our conversation, though, without acknowledging that it's been a year since George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis, a year since a nearly 10-minute video of his death reverberated across the country, prompting all of us to look at ourselves, really look at ourselves, collectively and individually. I asked Ibram if he would share his reflections on this somber anniversary. So I I wanted the nation to be at a different place at the one year anniversary of, of George Floyd's death. Um, you know, certainly it is good that um, the person who murdered him is being held accountable. Uh, certainly it is good that there is a 
larger number of Americans and indeed people around the world who are aware of the existence of systemic racism, who are aware that there's that there's fundamental problems in, in American policing. But I was hoping that we would have begun to make some pretty drastic changes to actually to actually sort of solve these these systemic problems and and we're we're still in a moment in which we're arguing over whether even racism exists um and even though we live in a nation of racial inequities and in, you know that are all around us so I, I i am i have mixed feelings you know i'm elated that there's this awareness and certainly more awareness than than this time last year, but at the same time, I am frustrated that there hasn't been more action. If you had a magic wand, Ibram, and you could have said, these are the changes that we needed to see, these are the changes that make me feel hopeful about the future and the present, what would those have been? Part of this is about policy and part of it is about framing. So as a result of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, and even as a result of the economic pandemic within the pandemic, the number of Americans who've lost jobs, who've lost businesses, who've fallen into poverty, um, if we as a nation uh, would have not only provided relief as as we have uh, to a certain extent to to people, but we would have also said that this relief isn't just relief to get people back on their feet to get businesses going again. This is also a crime fighting measure. <laughs> in other words, the, the the communities, the neighborhoods in our nation, with the highest levels of of poverty and and unemployment are also typically the neighborhoods with the highest levels of, of violent crime. And we consider the people in those neighborhoods, namely Black people, to be dangerous when indeed poverty is dangerous, when indeed unemployment is dangerous, when indeed housing insecurity and food insecurity is dangerous. And, you know, indeed sexual sort of violence and patriarchy that it stems from is is, is, is dangerous. And so what can we do as a nation to completely transform the conditions? And that would have been the start, right? And, and, and we would be working on how do we eliminate, again, housing insecurity? How do we eliminate the fact that so many Americans don't have access to, 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 to quality healthcare? Um, and, and we would have, again, seen those as not only efforts to help people, but even efforts to to eliminate violent crime or reduce it. And I'm saying that because part of what happened to George Floyd is, is partially what happens to, to, to Black people or even Black men across this country. We're seen as dangerous. We're seen as the problem. And the solvent is, you know, more weapons <laughs> or more armed people in our communities, uh, as opposed to weaponizing against the social conditions you know, in those communities. And so that's what I would have wanted us to be thinking that big um, and, and, and broadly. Do you think that there are hopeful policy discussions going on right now, Ibram, about police brutality, about some of the 
disparities that were laid bare, not only as a result of what happened to George Floyd, but so many police killings involving Black people, not just Black men. Are you seeing the the seeds of some policy conversations that you would like to see pushed faster, further? So in Ithaca, New York, uh, a very enterprising and courageous young mayor uh, just decided that he was going to completely reimagine public safety in that city and that he was going to essentially let go of the entire police force and completely reorganize it to the point in which some obviously officers would be hired, but others would be uh, rehired to specifically focus let's say on, 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 on mental health services or social services. Um, and, and, and so I think in part of the, the reason for that is, is, is because upwards of 50% of people who are killed uh, by police in this country have a, have a mental illness or have a mental disability. Uh, there's also efforts uh, in places like, I believe San Francisco and I think it's Berkeley in which the police are no longer allowed to stop people for traffic stops. Why? Because there's so many people who die unarmed uh, during traffic stops, as Dante Wright did in in, in Minnesota. Um, And and then there are certainly efforts uh, to think more deeply about funding. Uh, and, 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 And I think, you know, Katie, this is the fundamental question. Why are people committing crimes? Uh, are people committing crimes out of despair and poverty and unemployment? Or are people committing crimes because there's something culturally or fundamentally wrong with them? And, and how we answer that question is going to determine how we sort of, you know, attack the issue. Uh, and so there are people asking that question and, and, and building policy, you know, around it. And I think we need to move away from this model of whether there are sort of bad apples or good apples, you know, in American policing. The issue isn't the individual cops. And I think that's where we trap ourselves because we all are related to cops. We all know we've all interacted with, with cops who've helped us. So that, but that's not the issue. The, the issue is the fact that uh, the, the, Ameri- uh, the, the combined cost of American policing is more than every other military in the world combined, aside from the Chinese and the American military. That's the issue. <laughs> like, So it's not about individual cops, it's about the structure. As you saw people take to the streets, as the Black Lives Matter movement really gained steam and momentum following the death of George Floyd, was that something that you embraced? And did it feel as if America was finally all Americans or many, many Americans, not just sort of the prototypical uh, Americans, the fact that it did seem to span the racial divide to a certain extent. Was that heartening to you? It was. It, it was certainly heartening to me. I mean, the fact that you had demonstrations against police violence and, and, and systemic racism in every single state, in almost every single uh, town, uh, no matter its racial and economic sort of makeup, 
Um, and I mean, certainly was 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 heartening to me. As some observers estimated that it was the largest series of demonstrations in American history. And um, and so, how could you not, as someone like me who's who've been calling on Americans to 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 see the problem not as bad people, but to see it as as bad policy and um, and as structural racism? How could I not be heartened? And and indeed, by June of last year, one survey found that seventy six percent of Americans were reportedly saying that racism is a big problem. That's the highest number ever recorded um, for a survey. And and so we'll never get to a point on any issue where there's 100% of agreement. That's the beauty of humanity, right? We we see things differently and we have different perspectives, but, but obviously with some critical issues that is facing humanity, like bigotry, like climate change, like nuclear war, like pandemics, we, we have to have a governing majority that recognizes it as a problem so that we could, you know, heal from it. When we come back, anti-racism for kids, why starting the conversation early is so important. That's right after this. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? 
Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. This is so systemic and so foundational, racism in America. And I know that you are working so hard, Ibram, to reframe and reshape the way we learn about race, the way you learned about race, and what was sort of force-fed into you as a young man. And you're doing so much in that arena. But tell me about how you're trying to address this at a very young age, because it seems to me the more we're culturally conditioned, the harder it is to unlearn certain attitudes and behavior. I agree. I mean, we as adults often talk about how hard it is to talk about race and racism. Part of that is because we only really started talking about it as adults, right? If if we would have been conditioned to talk about it and conditioned on how we should talk about it, you know, from a young age, then I think it would be easier for all of us. And so part of, for me, in ensuring that the youngest of people are are talking about this is so that they have easier lives than we do, right, over this specific issue. But then also, they don't grow up like I did, you know, thinking that that the problem is is Black people. By the time I graduated high school, in, in the year 2000, not to date myself, um, I had consumed a decade worth of, of anti-Black ideas saying all the things that were wrong with Black people. And I thought those ideas were true. And, and I thought, therefore, that the problem that needed to be addressed were people, were Black people, as opposed to systemic racism. And, and really, I've spent the last 21 years trying to unlearn uh, those 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 racist ideas that had been fed to me. Uh, and it's been unbelievably difficult. And I only wish that I would have, instead of learning racist ideas, I would have learned anti-racist ideas because then I could have built on. I feel like I would have been so much further along right now in my life. And in fact, you write very movingly about in many ways you had to accommodate these anti-Black narratives from an early age. And instead of looking at your potential, your potential was kind of imposed on you. Yeah. And because it, think about it, if, if in the 90s, if there was ever a decade in American history where like Black youth were considered the American problem, which so much of American politics revolved around, around Black youth, um, you know, it was the 90s. And and so if you're constantly being told there's something wrong with Black youth and you are a Black youngster and you struggle in any capacity, it's easy for you to make the leap of, I'm struggling in this way because I'm a Black youth, <laughs> right? As opposed to, you know, I'm struggling in this way because I should be working harder or I should be doing this or I should be doing that. And um, and so it it... By the time I graduated high school, I was deeply self-conscious, uh, you know, about even my academic uh, skills, whether I was even worthy of college. I only ended up grad- applying for two 
colleges because I didn't feel that I was worthy of college. I was shocked when one of the colleges, the first of the two, admitted me. Like literally, I did not think I was college material. And and I, you know, I always wonder how much of that had to do with this internalized idea that there was something wrong with people like me. You are now working to to kind of stop that conditioning in young kids with a picture book. You have the anti-racist baby. You also have a 2016 book stamp from the beginning. It was just rewritten for middle school students. And talk about what you're trying to do in terms of shaping their perspective and why that is. I think you've really just described why that's so critically important because you want them to not be in your situation when you were a high school senior thinking you had no right or weren't college material. So talk about those projects. So first, I think as as caretakers, as, as people who love young people, and I have 95% of people love young people. <laughs> um, I think it's important for us to recognize that they see racial inequality. Um, it's not hard to see, right? And so they're going to see that some people, namely white people, have more. They're going to see that other people, you know, let's say, you know, black and brown people have less. The question that they're going to be asking is why? And but they're also going to live in a society where there are these messages that are told to adults and young people that that there's something wrong with black people and something wrong, something right about white people. And so you take you separate those two and you put them together. Young people, if we're not talking to them about why certain people have more and other people have less, will they not conclude that white people have more because they are more? Will, will they not conclude that black people have less because they are less? Will they not then look at themselves? Will not a young white boy say, I'm special because I'm white, as opposed to I'm special because I'm nice <laughs> or because I'm inquisitive? Will not a young black girl say, uh, there's something wrong with me because of the color of my skin. Will that not affect their development in terms of whether, you know, self-esteem or even conceit? You know, we don't want our kids thinking too high or low of themselves. Um, but ultimately, will they have a, an accurate rendering of society? Uh, and, and, and the key to this isn't, you know, to teach them that uh, the opposite of those ideas <laughs> that, you know, White people are less or Black people are more. The key is, well, you know, this is the result of bad rules that have favored certain groups of people uh, over the course of time and, and still do. Just like, you know, you don't like your curfew or your bedtime. You know, there are rules in society that have created these inequalities. And, and, it's, and, and these uh, inequities don't just exist between let's say, Black and Native people, they also exist between white people. In other words, certain wealthy white people have certain advantages over certain white poor people. And white poor people are called white trash, which is a racialized term. And you shouldn't think of anybody, any group of people in that way. And, and so there's so many different, it allows us to really get at and explain why inequality exists. And, and, and it allows young people to not 
think that there's something wrong with people. I, I, and I'm going to continue to say this, like it is so important for us to teach adults and young people that the, the groups, the racial groups are equals. And that doesn't mean that the individuals within the groups are all the same. You know, I know some black folks and white folks who work harder than me, right? It, it's, but when we talk about groups, to say that a particular racial group works harder or is lazier or is more gifted or more smarter than another group, that's the problem. Let's talk about the role critical race theory has in this because it's become, you know, a, a dirty phrase among certain segments of the population. And I think it's quite misunderstood uh, because like so many things in our current culture, it's become weaponized. So, you know, I think, can we begin by just explaining what critical race theory is and why it doesn't need to be a dirty phrase? Sure. So I think critical race theory emerged in the late 1970s and especially in the 1980s, specifically among legal scholars and, and lawyers and activists who recognized by the 1980s that racial inequity in, in housing and education and criminal justice and the environment were persisting after civil rights. And, and so critical race theorists then started to examine the structure of policies and power, uh, many of which were perceived to be race neutral, that was maintaining the inequity. In other words, the critical examination of structural racism. And, and it wasn't necessarily a, an attack on white people as it's consistently being framed. It was an attack on structure, uh, on policies, on practices that were leading to this inequity you know, and injustice. And, and I think it's unfortunate that critical race theory, which again, started out in legal circles and now has expanded to, to other circles, one of the Personally, one of the most fascinating interventions of critical race theory was, was by Kimberly Crenshaw, who, who coined the term intersectionality, in which she really wanted us to think about the intersection of, let's say, racism and sexism and the way it was impacting Black women. So you can't really understand what's impacting the, these, the race genders without understanding both. Um, and, and this gave us the tools to really analyze you know, our society and the laws in particular, that we're maintaining inequity, which is why it's sort of derived from legal theory. And the governor of Idaho recently signed a, a bill to ban it. What happened? How did critical race theory become a weapon by the status quo or by certain segments of the population or political groups? So... I think I mentioned earlier how last June, 76% of Americans <laughs> were recognizing that, that, that racism is a big problem. Um, and ever since the June, there has been a concerted effort to, to basically chip away <laughs> at that highest ever percentage of, 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 of sort of anti-racist awareness in this country. And this is the latest effort. Um, and, and, the, and, and, and largely because, so let's say, for instance, if you are 
uh, a legislator who uh, recognizes that the ideology of the country and the demographics of the country are moving away from you such that you can't get elected if everyone is easily able to vote. So what you're going to do is figure out ways to suppress the votes of your political opponents. And if you tailor those laws to specifically target black and brown indigenous voters, whether they're written into the law or not, those are racist policies. But how do you get away with those racist policies? By convincing your constituents and the American people that racist policies don't exist. <laughs> and that actually the real problem are those people who are identifying certain policies as racist. No, those are the real racists, the people who talk about racism. Um, not the policies themselves. So that allows you to get away with those policies, uh, continue to pass them, continue to think, cause people to think uh, that that uh, that the problem are those who are identifying racism rather than the racism itself. And then you're able to convince your constituents who now it's harder even for them to vote <laughs> that those policies are not only good for them, but they're also not racist. And, and so to me, that it's part of a larger plot and plan to, to establish sort of a very small segment of people uh, controlling the rest of us. Is it the, the last gasp of a white patriarchal system? I'd like to hope so. <laughs> um, and and, and I, I, I'd like to hope so. Because even the white patriarchal system, white men, for instance, many, many millions of white men right now are not benefiting from it. Uh, you know, and, and to give an example, you, 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 you know, we have this epidemic right now that we're not talking about of white male suicide by handgun uh, and, and the levels of white men who are, who are dying by, via suicide by handgun are at the levels of black men who die by homicides. Um, and, and so why is that? And where is this primarily happening? This is primarily happening uh, in, in states that are controlled by politicians who primarily say they're defenders of white men, right? And I'm going to make it easier for you. I'm gonna make sure that you, know, you have your second amendment rights. I'm gonna make sure you have access to guns so you can protect you and your family and your your quote women from those black criminals, those Latinx immigrants, and those Muslim terrorists. So then people they're able to get guns, and now they're killing themselves, and uh, and it's a tragedy. You know, it's a tragedy that continues to happen. Just as you have so many white working class uh, men who were devastated by this pandemic and this previous presidency. You know, at the same time they are imagining that that certain elected officials are seeking to benefit them. We become so tribalistic, Ibram, and it seems like that we're just a society of warring tribes, that, you know, it's a zero-sum game and that someone else's move toward equality is going to hurt someone else. I'll never forget, I worked at a network and the guy said to me, here, someone else's success diminishes you. Someone else's failure elevates you. Well, you can imagine I wasn't very excited about working at this organization. 
And I feel like that you could almost apply that to society today. How do, how do we get out of this trap of feeling that if someone else does well, we're not going to do well and that there's something important and beautiful, dare I say, about leveling a playing field? So I actually, I actually think this is an extremely important issue and, 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 and it's certainly an issue that Heather McGee addresses in her new book called The Sum of Us, um, in which she pushes back against this sort of zero-sum myth uh, of, of American society, and specifically the myth that many white Americans have, um, that uh, as people of color gain, they lose. In the greatest, in the, in, in the most general sense, what I would actually urge white Americans to think about is to not compare their lot to people of color. I think white Americans should be comparing their lot to white Canadians, to white folks in Europe. And think about what do they have that you don't have? <laughs> whether it's universal healthcare, universal childcare, whether it's uh, lower levels of income um, and economic you know, inequality, whether it's lower levels of white people dying by police, and on and on. Uh, and, and I think once, if, 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 if I think white Americans was to change their frame of reference to, okay, you know what, my kid goes to a first-class school, and if we change things, they're going to have to go back and coach. You know, actually, why can't all of our kids be going to, like, private jet schools? <laughs> which you haven't personally even been exposed to, right? And, and, and why can't all of us have that level of resources, you know, for our children? Because if we were to change this country, most people would actually gain. Um, but I don't think people think about it in that sense, I, I, particularly white Americans. And it's, this isn't just white Americans. You have black elites who are like, oh, if, if things change, we're going to lose. You have you know, different elites of color who think the same way. You, you, and, and, and that's just not true. Um, and, 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 and I think that, unfortunately, um, it's going to take some time for people to realize that. And I think as we make changes and people see that, whoa, I actually thought I was going to lose with the institutionalization of the Affordable Care Act, but I'm gaining. <laughs> This is actually good for me. Oh, whoa, whoa, wait, wait. They're trying to do away with this? No, 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 no. Even though before I was against it, now I'm going to defend it. And, and so that's what I'm urging us to be focused on. We need to make people's lives better. We need to show them that by making these, these huge changes that they're going to gain. There's no better proof than that. When we come back, the guilt and urgency that comes with the devastating cancer diagnosis at just 35. That's right after this. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. It feels as if we may take two steps forward, one step back. It's just a constant dizzying kind of progress and then setbacks. Recently, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones was denied this position at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She was denied tenure by the Board of Trustees. What was your reaction to what happened to her and the outcry that resulted? And what did it tell you about the power imbalance in the country that still exists? So I wasn't surprised um, in and that the board of trustees at, at UNC Chapel Hill would would politicize um, her 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 tenure case and and decide uh, that they were going to deny her her tenure and and the reason why I wasn't surprised is because as as someone who has been doing similar work within the academy. Um, I know that what is expected of, of scholars and intellectuals like us, uh, you know, like Nicole, um, is sometimes we simply are unable, <laughs> no matter what we do, even if we're a genius award winner, a Pulitzer Prize winner. MacArthur, MacArthur genius, yeah. Even if we've won, as Nicole has, multiple national magazine awards, you know, even if we 
are the conceiver of one of the most important journalistic pro projects uh, you know, of our time, that's still not enough because your politics, and, and I should say their politics, uh, sort of block us. And, and, and I think I took it very personally in the sense that I've seen that happen to so many people in the academy, um, you know, obviously who weren't as well known as Nicole. And, and in certain ways, I've, I've had to overcome massive um, uh, uh, speed bumps because of the type of work I was trying to do. So I was at the same time outraged because to me, she is a slam dunk. Um, you know, she's the type of person that, you know, any journalism school in the country would want to have tenured as a full professor teaching their students. At the same time, I wasn't surprised in the least. Have you spoken with her about this? I haven't spoken with her about this specific instance, but over the last year, we have spoken about the similarity, obviously, of the attacks that we've both been receiving, right? And so, you know, she has been just consistently with been attacked and, you know, misrepresented for her 1619 project and really her, her, her work in general. And obviously, I've been consistently attacked, you know, as well. And, and so I think we have reassured each other and, and, and been there for each other and, and been able to, you know, share that, you know, we were going through similar sort of experiences. And, um, but at the same time, I know how deeply she cares for students, journalism students. I, I know how deeply she cares for this nation. I know how deeply she cares for, for Black life. And I know how um, just brilliant she is as a thinker, you know, as a writer, you know, as an, and as a creator. And so I also took this personally as someone who, who's a huge admirer, you know, of her, because to me, she should be celebrated uh, as opposed to denied, uh, you know, tenure. What should she do? Um, I think she should do what she has just continued to do amazingly, despite the critiques on the 1619 Project uh, and, and her work and her, her vision for the country, she has continued to, to power through and do her work. <laughs> um, and but should she, should she leave that institution? That's not something I can answer. Um, if it I, were I, you, would you? So I think if I was in her shoes, I mean, I think I would consider it certainly, um, but I'm not sure what I would, I'm not sure what I would do. I think a lot of people's eyes were opened in a way they hadn't been before. Uh, you know, they might concede that racism exists, it's bad, but I think that many white Americans got a, a very important and, and late education in racism because it was talked about in a way that had been only addressed around the edges, really, in media and in culture writ large. How do we continue the conversation? How, in a, in a country that has a very short attention span and really demands almost instant gratification uh, and, and, and instant solutions, how can we 
continue these important conversations? How can we push for change? What is the most effective means of doing that? I think that we should think about this in terms of as individuals and as organizations and institutions. And so as individuals, each and every one of us can think about sort of what are we passionate about and knowledgeable about? What sector, um, you know, based on our hobbies or our profession or our interests, you know, where are we at in society? Are, are we in, you know, education? Are we in healthcare? Are we in the environment? Are we in sort of mass media? Where do we sit? <laughs> um, and then secondly, I think each and every one of us as individuals can think about, okay, those organizations in our specific space that are challenging racism, that are trying to create equitable and just sectors or institutions or communities, how can we support them, right? You know, what can we do as individuals to support them, whether through volunteering, whether providing our expertise, whether donating to those organizations, you know, what do we have to give? Um, to those efforts. Um, and then obviously each of us, most of us live in local communities, neighborhoods, work in institutions. And so it's thinking about that in the same vantage point, you know, those folks who are working against this in my specific neighborhood, in my specific institution, how can I support them? I can't let you go without asking you about your health because you were diagnosed with something that affected me personally. I lost my husband to colon cancer in 1998. He was 42 years old. And first and foremost, I, I wanna see how you're doing, if I can help you in any way, and how you're kind of soldiering on because I know firsthand it's a rough road. Wow. Um, well, first, I, you know, of course, you know, um, you know, my heart, of course, goes out to your family. And, you know, I'm sure it's something that you've been living with and um, dealing with for, for, for quite some time. And I am elated, whether elated is the best word, I don't know, that recently the screening age was lowered to 45. Yes. And, and so there's a growing awareness of the number of young people who are being diagnosed um, and who are facing this, um, this ugly disease. And I personally, I was recently, you know, uh, scanned and everything looks, looks fine. Um, and so I think I've been doing good. I um, don't have any noticeable cancer in my body. But, you know, obviously it's um, you just when you have stage four cancer, it's it can come back at any point. And so um, I feel lucky. Um, and in a way, I feel almost like a survivor's guilt because of so many people who were diagnosed with the same disease who tragically are just not with us. And I'm always asking, you know, why me? Why am I still here? And, and not them. But I also 
try to soldier on and, you know, as you sort of characterize it, to just do do good for the world, right? Um, and to even have a sense of urgency. I think the best aspect of facing this illness is I know, you know, time is something that I know it's 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 not guaranteed. And we all know that theoretically, but you know, for me, it's you know the idea of oh, we can just wait to do that. Well, I can't wait. <laughs> you know, I don't know what's gonna happen at my next scan. I don't know what's going to happen, you know, two months from now, or if I start feeling, you know, something. And, and so I think it gives me a level of urgency. I think that's why some people are like, why are you doing all these different things? <laughs> you know, why don't you wait to do this or that? And I'm like, wait for when, <laughs> right? Um, and, and also, I think we have to have a certain level of urgency because there's so many people who are suffering. Is that what propelled you? I mean, you're doing so much, Ibram. And I know one of your latest project is that you've gotten together a chorus of Black voices to talk about the African-American experience. And you have put together this incredible roster of people. And was that born of what's happening to you personally? And because you're kind of, your tentacles are, are are reaching far and wide. I think so. I I for me, once an idea emerges and I I obviously, you know, I can only I'm only one person. I can only do so much. I need support. Um but for me, I try to think about instead of whether we can do the idea, whether we can put together 400 souls, which was just an unbelievable experience to really work with 90 writers, eight of whom wrote five years of, of African-American history amounting to 400 years and, and 10 poets who almost uh, acted like these lyrical soloists in the book. So every sort of um, section would end with, 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 with a poem to really commemorate the 400 symbolic birthday as we called it of you know black america you know for me it's always okay how can i not whether i can do it but what type of support would i need to participate in this in this project if it's important and i'm glad we were able to i was able to work with professor keisha blaine and we were able to put together 400 souls and there are 90 writers in all what did you learn from these people? Because you have been so steeped in in this issue for a very long time. What did you personally kind of glean from their experiences that added to your own perspective? So I think the biggest thing that I learned is just how universal history and the writing of history and the writing of the past is. And so we have so many people who weren't necessarily trained historians who who contributed to the text but they were also able, they were able to write about the past from so many different vantage points in so many different ways which made this story so compelling and and if anything it it taught me how we can write history in an accessible way you know bringing in people you know many different people to do so well, thank you for spending this time with me. I really enjoyed our conversation. And um, you've given me a lot to think about 
in terms of what more can I do, both individually and, you know, collectively. So thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome, Katie. And, you know, again, I, of course, admire your work and um, was so glad recently to see you on Jeopardy. And um, <laughs> <laughs> it looked like you were having tremendous fun. I was very stressed out, Ibram. So oh, you I'm glad you thought it looked like I was having fun. <laughs> A huge thank you again to my guest, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. We'll link to all of his work in the description of this podcast. And you can catch his new podcast called Be Anti-Racist, beginning June 9th. And his new book, which he co-edited with Keisha Blaine, is called 400 Souls, A Community History of African America, 1619 to 2019. Buy it, read it, and spread the word. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen. Associate producers, Derek Clements, Adriana Fazio, and Emily Pinto. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecouric.com. You can also find me at Katie Couric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.